So let's try this again. He is risen. Amen. He really is. And that's what we're here to celebrate is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we're going to do it a little bit differently today from this point on. The uh, message that I have, I, I will let you know, is geared toward those who are probably visiting with us today here or at Cactus or at our venue across campus or our chapel. We have multiple venues. I felt very led uh, this year to not do a typical Easter Sunday message that might uh, preach to the choir or to the already convinced, but to really talk to those of you that we might not see till next Christmas. And so I, I really do want to talk to you. And for the rest of you, uh, you're going to listen in and, uh, and maybe even learn how it's to be done. And so I want you to bow with me right now and let's pray. Father, I thank you for your goodness and for your grace. I thank you for this day that we set aside, which is an awesome day to focus on, as Neil said earlier, to focus on the resurrection of Jesus that we do every day, but in a very set apart and heightened way today. And so, Lord, as we talk story now of how your story intersects with our lives and our story, I pray that you might give us ears to hear and eyes to see, and that, Lord, there would not be one of us here in, in this worship center or in the venue or at our Cactus campus who would escape the implications of who you are and your call upon our lives. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I mentioned before I pray, I want to do something a little bit different this Easter. What I want to do is share with you a portion of my story, but not to focus on me. I want to do it to help you understand how one story can and should intersect with God's story, with the gospel. And it's my great hope that in doing so, it will give each of you an, an opportunity to examine your story. Because that's what church is about. It is about you and I examining our lives and where we are spiritually and what's going on in our lives. So this is what it's going to look like for the next 30 minutes. My story to his story to hopefully you understanding your story. And just as a quick, quick preliminary, some of you are wondering why are we focusing on story? Because we live in a postmodern world today that's all about a holy hunt to try to find meaning. And what the scriptures teach us, what Jesus showed us, is that one of the best ways to find meaning is through swapping stories, through telling stories, our stories, and seeing how they intersect with God's stories. When Jesus was on this earth, he told, at least the ones that are recorded, over 40 different stories that he told, all designed to help people intersect with God and to understand him in their very lives. And so storytelling is a wonderful medium for doing that. So let me share with you just a little bit about my story, then we're going to bounce into a right understanding of God. As many of you know, and if you didn't, you're going to learn it right now, I only moved here to the valley about six and a half years ago. Before that, I had never lived outside of the Midwest. I did my graduate work in Chicago. I first pastored in Detroit. Yes, I own that. And I was born and raised in the Cleveland, Ohio area. And I just need to let you know that I was born in one of the most beautiful, quintessential New England-style towns that you can find. It was very small. In fact, the town that I grew up in, the entire town, is smaller than the church I now pastor. And it was called Chagrin Falls, Ohio. If you were to visit Chagrin, I got some pictures here right now. Through the center of town, you're going to see a beautiful waterfall, hence the name Chagrin Falls. 
There's a triangle in the center of this town where Washington Street and Franklin Street and Main Street all meet to form the town triangle. And in that triangle is a gazebo made of wood that goes all the way back to the 1800s. Very little changes in my hometown. There's a popcorn shop in my hometown that people will drive miles to from all the outlying areas on a Sunday afternoon to grab an ice cream cone or a thing of popcorn and just walk through the town and look at the falls or go to the gazebo. There are tree-lined streets in this town, just lots of beautiful old houses. And then when I was growing up in this town, there was only one high school, one middle school, one elementary school, but we had a lot of school spirits. Some of you might remember this, Friday night football games and car races on back roads and a few burger joints to go hang out in. At that time when I was growing up, there was only one barber shop called the Mug and Brush, but you could get Charlie or Art to cut your hair. There was only one soda shop inside a dime store that some of you might remember called Woolworths, and that's where we went to get a soda. There was only one department store in town. You're saying, what's a department store? That's where you bought appliances and clothes and things like that. And we did have three hardware stores, but they weren't called Home Depot or Lowe's. They were family-owned hardware stores owned by our friends and our neighbors. And I grew up six houses from the town center at 71 South Franklin Street. Here's a picture of my childhood home, a four-bedroom, one-and-a-half-bath home on a large lot. And I lived there from third grade until I went off to college in the 1980s. And here's my point. This was a Norman Rockwell town complete with a Norman Rockwell lifestyle. Some of you might remember these days. We had dinner every night together as a family. We hardly ever went out to dinner. There was a McDonald's, but it was eight miles away in the next town over, and we only went there at most once a month. These were back in the days when kids were fairly well-behaved because the teachers were allowed to touch them. Do you guys remember those days? (laughs) And so I can still remember in third grade, I committed the impardonable sin. I ran in the classroom. It was art. I spilled paint on my desk, and I ran to the sink. And Mrs. Moore said, did I just see you run? And she sent me out to the hallway. She got the other third grade teacher named Mr. Sakarik. And there's this little third grader, me, sitting on the ground in the hallway. And he comes out and he has his paddle with him. Thing looked like a surfboard to me. And, and, and he got down on, on his knees and he, and he got in front of me and he put the paddle in my face. And he said to me that if I ever hear of you running in class again, your name will be written on this paddle. And sure enough, all the names of every kid that he'd ever paddled were on this paddle. And then he sent me back into the room. And I just got to tell you one thing. I never ran in art again. You see, we did have trouble in my small town growing up, but it wasn't felony trouble. It was misdemeanor trouble. We would throw snowballs at cars or we'd graffiti the old railroad bridge. You get the idea. It's small town American life. And we did go to church every Christmas and Easter. I get many of you. I'm a recovering CEO, Christmas and Easter only type of person. (laughs) Nobody guessed that I would be a pastor, not in a million years. 
And going to church on Christmas and Easter, we had a little bit of dose of religion, but religion was basically this. And you're going to want to dial into this because this will be very important as we analyze all this in a minute. Religion for me growing up was basically live the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, and Jesus did say that, and then also was to be a good citizen. That was the extent of the religious messages that I got in going to the church that I went to on Christmas and Easter. And this was the world I grew up in. And not just me. It was a very common scenario in post-World War II Midwest to West American life. And the purpose of this life was very, very obvious to me even as a little guy. And that was that I was to be a good person and a good citizen, get a good education, secure a good job, raise a respectable family someday, a wife and a few kids, engage in civic responsibilities like the community and schools and even church, throw a few holidays in and have some nice vacations, maybe buy some toys if I could afford it, save for retirement because that's the responsible thing to do, and then all the while passing it on to the next generation so they too can start this process all over again. This was the message I got. This is the world that many of us grew up in who are my age or older because it was America for millions of people back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and even the 80s. Now, let's pause right now in this, and let's add some understanding of how we're going to make sense of your story and my story from more of a biblical or even academic standpoint. What do I mean by that? If we had some philosophers in here today from the academic world or even some people that want to understand the nature of how to analyze a worldview or analyze a story, they would tell us that any worldview worth considering must be built upon three pillars. And those three pillars are origin, purpose, and destiny. Because you see, these three pillars that any worldview is supported upon asks and answers questions that determine the value of your worldview and even determine the content and substance of your story. But what do I mean? Under the origin pillar, it attempts to answer the question, where did we come from? How did we end up here on planet Earth? The purpose pillar asks the questions, who should we, uh, what should we do and who should we be? What is life about? What's my purpose? Why am I here? And then the destiny pillar asks and answers the question, where are we going? Is there some place that all of this is taking us? Is life linear or is it like the Lion King where it's just the circle of life, if you remember that childhood movie? You see, any worldview, whether it's any of the five major world religions or whether it's Marxism, humanism, postmodernism, all ask and answer the same questions. And they have to do with origin, purpose, and destiny. Now, back to my story. When I was growing up, it was pretty clear to me what the answers to these questions were. And they weren't bad answers. I would just argue with you today that they weren't sufficient answers. So when I was growing up and I would ask the origin question, my dad, who was a Darwinian evolutionist, would say, well, we're here by chance and it's the survival of the fittest. How's that answer for you? He had a good friend that was a Christian scientist and he would argue some form of creation. He had another friend that was an agnostic that would basically say, I have no idea how we got here or what this is about. 
And so the answer to the origin pillar for me was simply this. We're here. We don't know necessarily how we got here, but let's get on with it and do something with our life. And that brought us to the second pillar, that of purpose. And again, as I've already hinted to, the answer to the, to the purpose pillar, the purpose questions, were very clear. And that is you need to be productive and you need to be a good citizen. That's what counts. Finding your place in this world, finding some enjoyment in the process, it's kind of a sanitized form of hedonism. Finding your place, finding your purpose. And the people that we worried about in my hometown were the people who just didn't find their place. Can you relate? It was the kid that didn't go to college or dropped out. It was the kid that never found a trade. It was the kid that got in trouble with the law. Those were the people that tended to be purposeless, not finding their purpose. Everybody else needed to just go with the flow and find their purpose here on planet Earth. And it mainly came through enjoyment. And this is what spawned the phrase that many of us have heard over the years, and you've all heard it, where like I'll meet people today, and nobody guessed I would become a minister. So I go to my hometown, and somebody say, hey, what are you doing? And I'll say, well, I'm a, I'm a pastor in Scottsdale. And what do they say to me? As long as you're happy. <laughs> right? Isn't that the answer? That's what you say when it's awkward. You know, you say, well, as, as long as you're happy, and, and that's it. That's exactly the point. That's the world I grew up in. Is it as long as you were happy, and it didn't even matter how that came, just not through drugs or something like that, as long as you were happy, then you have found your purpose. And that kind of led to the destiny pillar. The mantra of American society back in the 50s and 60s and 70s was this, and some of you will totally get this, and that was, let's just make it better and better. It was the great modernist hope. You see, the late 20th century was right after the technological revolution, the industrial revolution. We were on the heels of the digital revolution. Remember the $6 million man? We have the technology. We can make it better. And so the destiny for life 40 or 50 years ago here in our country was, man, we are just rocking and rolling. Let's make things better and better. The Jesuits nailed it. The Catholics were watching culture at that time, and they coined a phrase called imminentizing the eschaton, which is fancy theological words. Imminence means to bring close. Eschaton means heaven. It meant they were accusing us of trying to bring heaven to earth. That's really what a lot of the destiny was, is that we can build the good life this side of heaven, and we don't even need God that much to make it happen. And yet what happened was, is that nobody counted on Vietnam, AIDS, the urban plight, drugs and sex, poverty, world hunger, and then terrorism on our own soil. And as soon as all of that happened, our culture went from a modern culture to a postmodern culture. And postmodernism, the main difference, guys, is that postmodernism is disillusioned with the destiny claim of modernism. A postmodern, which is all of our young people today, will say, don't tell me that we can make it better and better. My parents tried that, and it didn't work. And at the end of the day, it left people awfully disillusioned. And that's the point of my story growing up. Listen, as good as my upbringing was in many ways, and it was great, it left me feeling short on finding and attaining meaning of any substantial kind. In fact, I can clearly remember being in junior high, I mean very young, and going to bed one night and thinking to myself, this is it? 
I, I mean, this is nice, and I'm enjoying life, but there has to be more than this. The Scriptures, in a cynical moment, would say it this way in the Old Testament, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. See, that's the mantra of a lot of people in American life, at least the life that I grew up in. And again, don't get me wrong. I was and am very thankful for my upbringing and childhood. It's just that none of it really answered, at least to my satisfaction, the questions posed by the three pillars. So this began a search for me. When I was 16 years old, I began searching in the Bible of all places for the answers to these questions. You're saying, why the Bible? Well, that's pretty clear because America at that time and still now still has a lot of Christianity in it. Have you noticed that? There's 350,000 churches still in America today. That's a lot of churches. They will balloon up on a day like today, Easter. And I knew that. There were tons of churches in my hometown. And I thought, well, let's begin there. And to make a long story short, what eventually happened is that I spent a year seeking the answers to the questions posed by the three pillars in the Bible, the light went on in my head. Finally, satisfaction came to my soul as I realized the substance of what the scriptures say about what it means to find our sufficiency in God. Let me explain. Let's go to the scriptures now. When it comes to origin, here's what the Bible says. It says that you and I are here because of God. The very first chapter of the very first book in Genesis says, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. So I'm not going to get into science right now. Even evangelical Christians dicker back and forth on the processes that God might have used to bring about his creation. But one thing we all agree upon is that it all began with God. Whether you're a Big Bang theorist or not, it all began with God. And God created this place and he created it good. But in continuing the origin discussion, Christianity also answers the question of how it got bad. Look at Isaiah 53, verse 6. This is a very revealing scripture. The prophet says, All we, meaning you and me, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way. So how did society and cultures and this world get to the mess that it's in? I don't mean to insult you, but here's what the Bible says. You and me. In other words, inside of us is a capacity to do bonehead and even sinful things. Can you own that today? I, one of the things that keeps me in the ring with God and the Christian worldview is that no other worldview has a better explanation of why things are so bad here. People try to bring cultures and societies or we blame a few bad eggs the only problem is those bad eggs don't have the power over us that we think we do. So it can't be just a few of them. There's got to be a lot of them that include me and you. One of my best friends, Tom Schrader, who's a kind of humor, humor, humorous pastor in this area, when he tells his story of how he became a Christian in his early 30s, he said somebody confronted him and said, you know, you're a sinner in need of grace. And Tom said, I had 30 years of empirical evidence to back up that claim. And I knew I was a sinner. No one had to convince me of that. And I was the same way. 
Even in my early teens, I understood that this place is a mess. Even in small town Americana, I saw a lot of that mess. And Christianity, in its origin discussions, gives us a clear reason as to why. God created us good, but we went our own way. But it's not done there. Under origin, God then offers us a way out, and it's John 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So isn't that amazing? We're now bumping into the gospel. Now our story is intersecting with God's story. As God says that 2,000 years ago, rooted in history, he came to this earth in the form of Jesus, his son, and he went to the cross to buy the forgiveness that you and I needed because of going astray, and that if you believe and trust in him, you can have eternal life, and as we'll talk about in a second here, even life now. And here's all I know. When I was 17 years old, after a search of about a year, and I understood that, that made sense to me. Francis Schaeffer, one of the better philosophers of the last century, once said that Christianity is the most rational and most livable worldview out there. And at least at 17, I got that. And on March 11, 1981, I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. It wasn't about church, it wasn't about membership, and it wasn't about religion. It was about a relationship with Jesus Christ. And my, my life went from black and white to technicolor. It went from being incomplete to complete. St. Augustine would once say it this way, that inside every human soul is a God-shaped vacuum that can only be filled by God himself. And I experienced that 30-some-odd years ago in my life. And it's at this point that the purpose pillar came into play. Because once you come to God in a real and vital relationship, the Bible clearly tells you now what your purpose is. And it's not to become a missionary per se. It's not to be a monk. God wants to keep you in your daily world and culture. But look at the difference now. Look at Micah 6 verse 8. This is a great passage. It says, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you, here it is, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. And see, now we're getting somewhere. There's a vertical component and a horizontal component to a life that has come home to God. The horizontal component is that flowing out of your love for God, you now want to do justice and start to right some of the wrongs of this fallen world to be involved in helping people. You want to let kindness lead the way and live a Jesus-like life as you interact with those around you. And then also there's a vertical component, component in which you walk humbly with God. And you're saying, well, how do you do that? Look at Philippians 3, verses 10 through 11. Paul the Apostle is thinking about this idea of how do I walk with God? And this is what he says, that I may know him, meaning Jesus, and the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. See, this is our purpose now as followers of Jesus, that we might know him and find him in the deepest and darkest valleys of our life. And now we're butting up against Easter because how do you know him? You know him as the resurrected Savior, rooted in history, who defeated the grave and now reigns in eternity in heaven and reigns in your heart as you believe and trust in him and gives you power for daily living. And all I can tell you guys is that I experienced this 
The Bible says that before I came to Christ, I was dead in my trespasses and sins. I got that one. And after I came to Christ, I now have a power for living that allows me to pursue justice, that allows me to be kind, that allows me to know God and to have a real relationship with him. And it's a relationship that someday is going to culminate in eternity. Rick Warren, in his very popular book, The Purpose Driven Life, would say it this way. Look up here on the screen. He says, life on earth is just the dress rehearsal before the real production. See, heaven's not a pipe dream. Heaven is not wish fulfillment, as Freud said. Not at all. Heaven is a real place. Eternity, not bound by time or temporal existence. And what the scriptures say is that for those who know and follow Christ and his ways, heaven is our destiny. And so it's 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 and 21. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Again, it's Easter. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by one man, referring to Adam, came death. By a man, meaning Jesus, has come also the resurrection of the dead. So, so, so death for the Christian is not the end of things. It's only the beginning as we go to be with our Savior for all of eternity. And so add all this up, guys. When I was 18 years old, I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist. I knew nothing about the Bible. I had no theological training. All I knew is that my story intersected with God's story. That the journey that I had been on, seeking the answers to the questions of the three pillars, all of a sudden intersected with what God says about my life. And I accepted Christ as my Lord and Savior. And my point in telling you that story, as I said earlier, is really twofold. Is to one, to ask you to analyze your story here today. That's what we want you to do this Easter Sunday but then to also let you know that we have a community of faith here that is all about stories like that. We come from all different places around the country. Some of us have been native Arizonians, some of us from the Midwest or California, and we have very different and varied experiences of the world that we grew up in, but but one thing is constant, and that is that for most of the people that call this church home, they have found their sufficiency and satisfaction in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And it's amazing the stories we tell. I'm going to wrap up here in a minute giving you a chance to uh, receive Christ in your life if today is a day for you to do that. It was for me so many years ago. But before they do that, we've prepared a very special story that I'll just warn you right now is a very very moving story, real and raw, of something that happened in the lives of one of our dear families in this church over the last four or five or six years. And they have graciously and courageously allowed us to capture their story and share it with you because they've been sharing it in so many other ways ever since God's story intersected with theirs. So look up here on the screen and then we'll talk a few more minutes and I'll let you be on your way. Look up here. I don't know, I quit smoking cigarettes in the early 80s and threw a toothpick in my mouth and I've had a toothpick every day since. So yeah, I'm the toothpick guy. I'm the director of the division that has about 1,400 employees that work at special events around the valley. After my divorce, just worked and worked and worked because that was how I was defined by how successful I was at work, but never really being happy, as a matter of fact. 
I met Tana and we fell in love instantly. At least I did. We um, just hit it off right away, chemistry immediately. Tana had these two beautiful little kids, Kaylee and Mason. So I said, let's get married. So we did, we got married in Disneyland. And then uh, Daisy was born after only six months inside mom. She had a rare issue with her umbilical cord and she had some stomach surgeries and some serious problems. That experience was really terrifying and she lived in the NICU for about three months. And during that time, this family, the few sorrows, had always been a good friend of mine and I told him what was going on with Daisy. And he said, you know, you should come to our church. And I said, well, I don't want to be the guy that goes to church just because my kid's in the hospital. And Jimmy said, God doesn't care why you come. Glenn had never even gone to church once in his life. He had never even prayed ever before. My dad uh, had a hard time with religion, and uh, he taught me that it was for sissies. But we talked about it, my wife and I, and, and we said, uh, we'll try it. We'll try anything at this point. What's the name of it? And they said, Scottsdale Bible Church. And, and so I went, I went along and we went to church and it gave us a little refuge from the NICU. We went for about a year and a half after Daisy was born and she's doing wonderful and um, you know, there's, there's no long-term effects for her. It became a bit of a lifestyle for us. My little Mason, he fell in love with church. He would ask specific questions about heaven and I didn't know the answer. And he believed immediately. And he started praying to God, and I would find him praying under his sheets at night. One night we were laying in bed, we heard a cough, which was a familiar, unpleasant sound, which was usually the beginning of one of Mason's asthma attacks. So I grabbed the medicine, comes in a little vial, and ran in and dumped it in the mask and put the mask on Mason and put him on my lap and turned the machine on and I could see that he was panicking a little bit. And it startled me and so I jumped out of bed and he came running across the room at me and he threw his arms up and he said, Mommy, please help me, I'm dying. I think she went to run for her phone to call 911. And that's when Mason stopped breathing. Glenn gave Mason CPR for about six minutes. When the paramedics came, I had his heart beating, and then they worked on Mason for about 20 minutes in the hospital and tried all the different things that they could try to bring him back until it was clear to everybody that he wasn't coming back. Of course, I, I lost control. And I knew God was telling me, I am a compassionate God, I'm a loving God. I love him enough to take him. So I was pretty angry. And I said to Tana, so if there's a God, how could he take my son? I said to him, don't you dare be angry at him because he is all that we have. And at that point, I brought him into my life and into my heart and I knew. I just knew. So the next day, Pat Sullivan explained to us how there's a chance that God was answering Mason's prayers as opposed to not answering ours. I shifted from, if there's a God, 
how could he take my son to there is a God and how could he not take my son? And the church reached out to us and they had this gigantic, amazing funeral. And we hadn't given any money to the church. We weren't members of the church. It's an amazing community. And God stood us up and sent us out to smile and tell people that if you have a relationship with Jesus, you don't need anything else. Because there's been some tough times in that four years since Mason died. But it's been the best four years of my life. I used to hear people say, count your blessings. And I used to think my motorcycle, my gold watch, the money that's in my bank account, those aren't blessings. Blessings are friendships, joy, your family. It'd be pretty rare to catch Glenn Ray working on a Sunday anymore. That's our family time. That's our church time. We pray as a family and we study the Bible as a family and we're grateful as a family. My name is Tana Ray. I'm Glenn Ray and this is the story of my family and we're proud and blessed to be able to tell it. simple point in sharing with you today what we've shared with you is that God loves you even in the darkest times of your life. He is there for you as he was for Glenn and Tana and that as you allow your story to intersect with his gospel, his story which is true for you, here's what we promise you. He will be there for you. When Jesus was ascended into heaven, he said, I will never leave you or forsake you. I will always be with you. But it's a spiritual journey. God has made you with a body, with a soul, and with a spirit. We call that the tripartite understanding of the human person. That you're a body organically, a soul with a mind and emotions, but a spirit that is also made in the image of God. And God desires to commune with your spirit through his Holy Spirit and your son, Jesus Christ. His word is our guide, but make no mistake, he is very real. And it's through the valley of the shadow of death that we find his presence most often. I love how Glenn said it, that he wouldn't trade the last four years for anything, even though they've been very difficult times. And what we want you to know is that that's the journey we're on as a church, just collectively as people. And we support each other and we love each other as best we can in our muddled way in the midst of our ongoing relationship with God through Jesus Christ. I want to let you in on a little secret here. There's an agenda behind almost every church in America on Easter Sunday. And that agenda is to try to get most of you to come back before Christmas. It's just what we try to do as pastors. And we do that by putting on the best worship experience we can, bringing our A game to our teaching and speaking or what have you. We ask all the church people to behave themselves and be nice and things like that. (laughs) And our goal at the end of the day is to get you to like church so that you might want to come back. I'm here to tell you today that's not my agenda. I thought about this long and hard this week. I thought about many of you. You need to know my goal is not to get you to like church. My goal is to get you to love Jesus. Because here's what I know. If you can love Jesus, you'll probably like us. But even more importantly, 
If you can love Jesus, you are in that sweet spot where no matter what life might throw your way in the future, you will be able to go through it, not just survive, but thrive, just as you saw in our video. God is that good, and he loves you that much. So I want to give you an opportunity as we wrap up here right now to pray to receive Christ and for our Cactus Campus and venue and for those in our high school room as well. And I'd like to do that by just praying with you as your pastor and friend. So if you are somebody who's ready to receive Christ here today, as I did so many years ago, as you saw in our video, we want to give you a chance to do that right now. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'd like every one of us to bow. All of us bow. In the cactus and venue, let's bow in prayer with your head down because this is just between you and God. And there are some of you here today who are very ready on this Easter Sunday to mark today as your spiritual day to come home to God. Just as I did 30 years ago, you, you sense that the, the origin and the purpose and the destiny makes sense. You understand the gospel that Jesus Christ came for you and that he's calling you home to himself. And so here's how you do this. Just pray along with me in your mind and heart. Dear God, I thank you that you love me. I thank you that you made me, that you made me in your image and that you made me to know you. But God, I know I'm a sinner. I know I have strayed. I know that I've gone my own way way too many times in life, sometimes knowingly, sometimes unknowingly. But either way, I've gone my own way. And I thank you that you've offered me a way back through the forgiveness of your son, Jesus Christ. And so I accept him as Savior and Lord. And I invite him into my life, into my mind and my heart, my very soul, to be my leader, my forgiver, my Savior and my Lord. And I thank you for the destiny of eternal life and the purpose now of being able to know you and live a life that is pleasing to you. Father, I pray for the rest of us right now that as we go out of here on this Easter Sunday that we might go out as well now with those who just prayed that prayer with full assurance of faith, knowing that through the resurrection of your son Jesus Christ, we have life, not just life eternal, but even life now. And that, Lord, no matter what may hit us in this valley or in our darkest valley, that, God, you are with us and your grace is enough. Protect us as a church, protect us as a country, protect us individually, and keep us so very close to you, we pray. Thank you for a special Easter Sunday today. And we pray these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. And we all say together, amen. amen. So one last time, he is risen. God bless you guys. Have a happy Easter.